I do voyeuristically drop in on Twitter every day to see what the <laughs> hell's going on. And I really love the idea that, oh my God, Tony Gilroy knows how to do all this thing, but he puts her death off screen. Did they, did they have a production problem or was it a scheduling issue or what was it? Why would he do that? And uh, I wouldn't have done that if I didn't think, if I didn't know I had the eulogy. I was like, I had the eulogy idea a long time ago. So I was like, having that in my hip pocket makes it almost mandatory that I do it this way. If you've been sleeping, it's time to wake up. It's time to start listening to massively projected holograms telling you to wake up and start fighting the empire. But before you do that, listen to us, because we're going to break down the season one finale of Andor, and we are not alone. Series star Diego Luna and series creator Tony Gilroy are going to join us and answer all of our burning questions about said finale, because that is precisely how we roll here on the Dagaba Dispatch. I am Dalton Ross, sitting here unarmed and asking my good friends Devin Kogan and Lauren Morgan to kill me or take me in. So uh, what say you, Devin? I I just, I think we should reconsider um, the podcast and turn this into, instead of us sitting around talking into mics every week, I think it should be us like as giant holograms beamed into your living room <laughs> telling you to um, uh, prepare for armed revolution. I'm in. Lauren, you in to go as a giant hologram? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I would look delightful as a gigantic hologram. Like, we'll <laughs> see how it goes, you know. Just don't shoot up. Shoot down. Don't shoot no, up when, shoot you, when you film yeah, our yeah. when you film our hologram. Exactly. Uh, but yes. b- before we get into the Andor finale, and I'll then bring in our our two guests, which are uh, awesome. Um, just want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Obviously, coming up this week. What is the uh, uh, Lauren? We'll start with you. What's the food you're most looking forward to eating this Thanksgiving holiday? I'm a side dish man. I'm a side dish man. Um, I guess probably. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I haven't had turkey since 1992. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I do enjoy a tofurkey. So, um, but probably like the stuffing, uh, smashed potatoes kind of thing. So, yeah, my family's not really, uh, my parents, my mother's never really been huge on Thanksgiving though. So it's always sort of an interesting meal, but we'll see how it goes. Devin, what about you? Well, in my family, I'm excited because it's the first time I'm going to see my extended family in a couple of years. Um, and in, my job is always to make the pecan pie. Our grandmother always made a, oh. a fantastic pecan pie. So I was the, the inheritor of the recipe. So it's my job to to make the pecan pie. But I also have to try to make a vegan version this year um, for some vegan family members. So we're going to see how that goes. The the vegan mm, baking, yeah. you know, I've got the the flaxseed and the the vegan butter and all the the alternatives, but but it's going to be a bit of an experiment to see how that turns out. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a one. rousing success, uh, without a doubt. I'm all about the stuffing. This whole meal for me is about stuffing. I love it. I don't know though why, since I love it so much, why do I not eat stuffing year round? Why is stuffing I not a year round also- thing? I always think like, why am I not eating stuffing? And I, I'll like buy a bag of it, and then I will literally just have it till. I think I, there's a bag from last Thanksgiving, and I am always like, I, why am I not eating stuffing more often? But it's kind of it's, how like, it winds up. It's so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. Um, well, I hope you all have hearty meals and enjoy time with family, and hopefully, we all get a little bit uh, time away from our laptops uh, as well. Although no promises made on that front. Okay, so uh, season finale, folks. This is it, uh, episode 12 now in the books. Let's get our uh, big picture thoughts. Devin, what did you think of the season one finale of Andor? I mean, it ruled. I have just been, if you've listened to the show, this has been, you know, a sort of a, a journey of me being like, oh, the show's okay, to me being like, oh, I cannot wait for this show every single week. And I, I'm i so into it. Um, I think thought this was a great finale. It was sort of, we've had all these different plot lines sort of scattered across the galaxy on Coruscant and Ferrix and, and all these different places. Um, and here they all, you know, come to a head where you have characters meeting who or, or running into each other who have sort of like been you know kind of circling around each other for the whole season but here you have all these plot lines that are sort of you know coalescing into one one big finale um what did you guys make of it i thought like you know it was earlier in the season where i was like where is all this ferric stuff going and then i was like oh this is where it's going so i felt like the investment in ferric early on uh really paid off here and i thought i mean i thought the call to the rebellion 
uh, wound up really good. And just seeing the whole entire uh, Ferex starting to rebel, I, I, I thought was extremely effective. And um, yeah, I thought it was overall a really great uh, finale. It tied in almost every single plot line that they had. So it was, it was really, I think, over the course of the season, it really built to a satisfying finale, which I think for some of the Star Wars shows and a lot of the Marvel shows, a lot of times the finale just kind of collapses like a flan in the cupboard to steal something that Eddie Izzard used to say. So here I feel like this one was really like it, it really uh, held up. So uh, what do you think, Dalton? Yeah, I really liked it. I, I I don't think that the early Ferrick stuff, quote unquote, paid off. I still think that mm-hmm. that just was not kind of well, very intriguing, uh, well done. But I that said... I thought the finale on Ferrix, uh was great. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like the fact that you had everyone in the galaxy except Mon Mothma sort of descending onto Ferrix, you know what it felt like in a weird way? I mean, it didn't feel like this, but like you guys have seen the movie Midnight Run, De Niro and Charles Grodin. Lauren, you've never no, seen Midnight I Run. Know. I oh, know. Lauren Morgan. I know. Oh, kind of tra- Lauren Morgan. Char- Go Charles watch- Grodin. Outside of like the, you know, the great Muppet caper. I'm not a Charles Grodin person. No, but, but this is, know, this is, know, this is Grodin at his best. It, it's a great movie, but it's like, you know, it's obviously, obviously thematically and tonally very different, but it's everyone descending at this one place, you know, at the airport, you got like five different groups of people all with a different agenda. And that's, I love that stuff. I love it. So that's what you essentially have here. You have everyone like Cyril Karn's got his thing going on. Luthen's got his thing. You got Deidre who wants to do this. You got Cassian who wants to do that. Everyone is there for like a different sort of reason. And um, it's all building up to this uh, big parade that they're going to have. Uh, and uh, I love the buildup on it. You know, we've, we've sort of complained that there was too much buildup on this show a lot of times, especially in those first three episodes. And maybe a little bit with the heist too, that could happen a little faster. But it all worked in this one episode in terms of it just built that tension. To, and we all know what's going to happen. We all know there's a huge conflict. Something huge is going to happen. But it starts off very slow with those, you know, the gonging happening and the very slow walking in the parade. And I thought it totally built that uh, suspense that we wanted wanted to see, which ultimately. And I guess, listen, I, I guess I, I continued my streak of just wildly inaccurate Star Wars predictions that I <laughs> that, that I, I had on Obi-Wan Kenobi where just like everything I said was wrong. I was like, let me tell you how it's going to be, ladies. I've been around the block a few times. I know how this works. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil Lauren's interview with Tony Gilroy, but um, but I, I made sure she did ask, even with the giant Marva, you know, hologram and the giant speech, I was like, but we still never saw her die. Can you just make sure? <laughs> and he did confirm that 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 she's she's dead. So what did you all think of, of the speech? Lauren and we talked a little bit offline, and I know you had some issues with the actual hologram presentation, of it, which I personally yeah. thought was super cool. I don't know what you didn't like about it. I, I think it was like the first thing where I was like, that looks a little bit weird. But then once Fiona Shaw started going and then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm into this. It's just sort of like, I think one of the thing is that uh, Andor has spent so much time being sort of grounded and like realistic that that was just sort of like one of those like, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is a little bit more CGI than they've really been playing around with. Um, but I thought her speech was great. And if you have someone like Fiona Shaw, yeah, please give her a, a call to rebellion because uh, she's going to knock it out of the park. So, I, yeah, it was a, a little bit of technical. I was a little bit like, huh, that kind of looks a little odd. But, after, you know, it, it worked out in the end. What about you, Devin? What would you think of the big speech? I love the big speech. I mean, that's why you cast Fiona Shaw, right, is to, yeah. to deliver, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an 11th hour big, you know, call to arms that I, I think is really powerful and really, really emotional. Um, and it kind of it's kind of serves as a centerpiece of this whole episode and and kind of, you know, it, it's this sort of mission statement for the whole show. Um, and it's sort of, you know, the, since the beginning you know, in all these interviews, they've been very clear about like, when the show starts, this is not the Cassian Andor you meet in Rogue One. He's a very different, you know, kind of person. And here in the finale, we start to see the shades of the Cassian Andor that we recognize and and we know from, from Rogue One. I also just wanted to point out, I am absolutely obsessed with Cyril Karn. He is just the the weirdest weirdo <laughs> that has ever existed. I love when he saves Deirdre and she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I heard you were in trouble. And you know, in his head, he's like, oh my God, this is it. She's finally going to notice me. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm finally getting to be the, the hero that I've always wanted to be. And it was just such like a 
weird, delightful performance. Um, and I just, I, I love everything about it. He takes this character and it just makes him so weird. I like that Diedrich couldn't, still couldn't decide whether she wanted to slap him or thank him. Right. Cause it really did look like she was about to She's slap him. She's a little bit like, like, oh my God, I have a stalker. What is the deal with this yeah. guy? But this, this worked out to my benefit <laughs> right. right now, but you're still weirding I don't me know. out. There was, there was so. a little part of me that was like, are they about to kiss? Like, I, yeah, absolutely. No. Like, you know, Sarah was thinking it. Sarah was like, this is my moment. Sarah was hoping, you And know, Deirdre was more just propose. like, what the hell are you doing here? Like, thank you for saving my life, but also, oh my God, you're so weird. Which I just, it's such a weird dynamic. I love it so much. Yeah. Thank you for preventing my murder. I'm still not going to kiss you. I, I'm I'm willing to bet that that's going to be a season two big plot line where I think she's maybe going to, you know, he's going to like sacrifice himself to save her or like he's going to be like, run away with me. They're both and they're both probably going to die on the Death Star. That's what I've kind see, of figured I, out. I can see her like, you know, him being like, <laughs> let's run away together and her being like, no, and just like, you know, like letting him, I don't know, fall to his death or sacrifice yeah. himself for her or something like that. So I'm I'm fascinated by the super weird bizarre dynamic between the two of them and i can't wait for more of it that was one part i didn't get to ask tony gilroy about that was definitely on my list like i'm like what's happening with these two crazy kids but i ran out of time so we it, it shall remain a mystery for now maybe they die on scarif maybe they don't even make it to the, death, the death star someone here is dying on the death star oh, you know yeah. i would be disappointed if we don't see someone explode on the death star is she taking him into the isb then is he like going to be like an isb lackey in season two? Potentially, or I think she might just kind of like use him as like like Intel or like, you know, somebody who's like kind of yeah. off the books. Like she's so by the books, but I think she would maybe be like, well, you can kind of like, you know, do some digging and some investigating like, you know, under in an unofficial capacity um, and kind of manipulate him and exploit him a little bit. That's 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 my guess. But again, who knows? We'll see. Maybe he's maybe he's the one who smokes out Lonnie as the uh, as the traitor. But you never mm. know. Mm. Uh, so, uh, in another wildly inaccurate prediction, I didn't necessarily predict <laughs> this, but I did say it wouldn't surprise me at all if like Luthen basically dies at the end of the season. Like that's sort of the, the, the moment that sort of spurs Cassian on finally into the rebellion, um, did not happen. <laughs> You're O for O, Dalton. Yeah. Uh, no, the, just in the entire Star Wars galaxy. As soon as I saw Luthen survived, I was like, Dalton's wrong again. <laughs> again. So. Ding. We need a bell. <laughs> Sammy, put, put a bell ring in right now. Just a little ding. Just add it in. And uh, so what do you think about Luth Luthen? He obviously goes there to, to kill. He doesn't want any loose ends. So he goes to kill Cassian. Uh, doesn't get the chance to do it. And then he's just going to leave. And then Cassian shows up on his ship. And basically gives him the chance to kill him and or says he'll he'll join him and and then uh obviously joins the rebellion. Uh Lauren, what do you think about uh Luthen? I know you're we're all big fans of the character and of yeah. Stellan Skarsgard. I was sort of delighted to see that he was going to continue into season two because I think he's been kind of the MVP of the season. I thought it's also interesting that Cassian is joining sort of the more extreme part of the rebellion because like, you know, that was uh something that I noticed is that like, you know, used to be like, you know, Mon Mothma and Bale were in the like you know, civilized part of the rebellion. Saul was in there. And then now you've got Luthen who's on the real crazy side of it. So interesting to see that that's where uh, Cassian is joining up in the sort of the most extreme sacrificing anyone kind of part. But of the he rebellion. is always in, even when we first met him in Rogue One, he was the guy that when they needed some dirty work done, he didn't. We saw him kill an informant and we saw him get the, the call to kill G Galen Urso. Like he had no issues uh, getting his hands dirty. Yeah, you know, and we've seen some of the other rebellion leaders really do uh, have an issue with it. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that he's joining in on in, on Luthen here. Uh, and I was just kind of glad to see that, like, you know, Luthen survives and that, you know, Cassian is joining up with him. So I'm very I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what kind of incidents they get up into season two. And I'm assuming Val and Sinter uh, are also going to be part of that crew. So curious if they'll kind of join back together again or if they're just kind of going to be going off on separate missions. What about you, Devin? Yeah, I um I mean, look, I'm not mad about it. More Stellan Skarsgård is not never a bad thing. I think like I think we all agree, like Lauren said, he's really been one of the MVPs of this show and so um look, if he gets to deliver another like firecracker speech next season, I'm all in. Like great. More of that, please. Um but yeah, I think it's kind of fascinating and I also think I wonder if, you know, 
we the Marvis speech sort of radicalizes Cassian, but I also wonder if it kind of like softens Luthen a little bit. Like he's been so cynical and so much about like the ends justify the means, and you can't be attached. And like you know, he gives that big speech um, on the on the bridge to the the ISB agent, um, and I wonder if like Marvis speech kind of gives him a little bit the sense of that like hope and optimism that maybe he's been missing a little bit. I'm curious to see whether his outlook has like whether his time with Cassian or, you know, kind of like that Marvis speech, like kind of softens his stance a little bit, obviously still fully devoted to the rebel, um, to the rebellion, but just like in a different way. That's, that's something that I would be curious to see whether they, they explore a little bit, or if he's still sort of like the, the very like, um, you know, uh, no blurred lines, like very clear, like you're either with me or you're, or you're not. I'm curious too, because it could embolden him, right? This is what he said he needed. We yeah. need the boot, the boot needs to be put on people's throat yeah. to make them rebel. And that's exactly what just happened on Ferrick. So yeah. maybe he's like, yep, I was right. More of this, please. Right. I, I, I actually, I, I asked Tony Gilroy what like Luthen was thinking when he was watching uh, Ferrick's rebel. And he said that like Luthen couldn't be prouder to see that like, people rising up like that. We talked a little bit about uh, where Luthen was heading in, in, in season two. And we talked a little bit about like, in, uh, you know, Luthen's like Aldani was his coming out party. So now it's sort of like, you know, how he pushes forward in that. But yeah, he was talking about like, you know, Luthen was really happy uh, to see Ferrex rebel like that. We haven't talked a lot about Mon Mothma. She didn't do a ton in this episode because she wasn't on Ferrex, but she did have that sly maneuver where she's trying to figure out how do I have an explanation here for this money that's gone missing out of my account oh, that they're going to so find. Good. Yeah. And she basically, basically says like, <laughs> all right, like, hey, turn on like a, uh, put up the, you know, hey, limo driver, put up the, the partition so you can't hear us. <laughs> Very well knowing that that he's there to spy on her. And then she accuses her husband of gambling. And the, her husband's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm a really crappy husband in a lot of ways. Like, I'm first of all, my look is terrible. My ponytail should just <laughs> so like is, is a crime yeah. uh, as it is. It also just seemed like her husband was kind of half in the bag anyway <laughs> when he got out of the party. So it's like, he's kind of like drunk and like, what? And I don't know. I didn't just spend yeah, anymore, like, right? I'm cheating on you. I'm pro empire. And like, I have a terrible look going on. But no, I'm not gambling. Uh, so that get that's gets her out of that, and then the only thing we uh, other saw there was just like her just like looking like she had just bitten into a lemon when she has to introduce her daughter to that skeezy dude's uh, son. She looked absolutely miserable at the end there, Devin. Yeah, I just I I love I loved everything about this. I loved her like throwing her awful husband under the bus is such a great move, such a great move. Um, but, when in doubt, know, <laughs> when in doubt, throw your awful husband under the bus. But throwing your awful daughter under the bus, I don't know about that one. We'll see how that we'll see how that pans out. See, Lauren, Lauren was all about it. Lauren was like, I was like, maybe clap. maybe if you'd been nicer to your mother, you wouldn't be uh, betrothed to. <laughs> but it seems like this is what the daughter wants. Yeah, she's so yeah, excited she's, about uh, it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So she, you know, she's very traditional that way. So you know, and I think I think Mon was kind of like, well, if she wants it, okay, <laughs> like, oh, this will get me out of a, a jam. Tony Gilroy said that like Mon really didn't have any sort of choice in that, and it's like if she hadn't done this, like her family probably would have gone down anyway. So this was a way to like, you know, she is, you know, crossing her ethical lines, but you know, in, in some respects, she's keeping them safer than if, you know, the empire found out what she was doing and tossed them all in the clank. Uh, before we get to our interviews with uh, Tony Gilroy and Diego Luna, uh, anything else you guys want to touch on from the finale? Um, there is one bit that we didn't talk about last week that I wanted to make sure to point out. Um, there's that lovely moment where episode 11 ends on the beach with, um, with, uh, Diego staring out sort of at this sunset. And I just thought it was like a really lovely foreshadowing moment. It's not mm. even foreshadowing. It's just like a lovely parallel to, you know, if you've seen Rogue One, uh, you know, kind of where Cassian's story ends, um, on a beach with the sunset. Um, and I thought that was just like a really lovely moment that I just wanted to point out that, that really, really struck me. And I'm curious to see whether we'll see any more sort of like Rogue One foreshadowing or sort of like, you know, more, um, you know, kind of little, little moments like that as the series goes forward. Where are you all at in terms of now grading season one as a whole? I think we were all like a little lukewarm on it at the beginning. I think we all really were into it at the end. When you put that whole package together where I'm probably at like a B plus, I still think I had some pacing issues early on in those first six episodes. 
And then the, the prison arc was great. And then the finale was great. So you put it all together for me. I'm at a, about a B plus. What about you, Lauren? Yeah, B plus is probably around it. I think this is uh, a show. And if people haven't watched Andor yet, I think it's really going to work well. It is a binge watch because I think it kind of comes in power the more you see it. Um, so, yeah, I say I would say like B plus. And, but it's like the last six, I'd, I would probably give an A too. So especially like just starting with the Narcana 5 stuff. So. You know, what did you think, Devin? I feel similarly. I think the back half is, you know, some of the, the the best television I've seen in a while. I think the first half was a little little clunky in places. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think a B plus is sort of around where I would fall. I'm curious for you guys. You know, I've seen a lot of people online call this certainly the best Star Wars television show they've done yet. And I think I'm tempted to agree with that. Um, although as much as I love Mandalorian and, um, you know, just certain episodes there, I think as a whole, maybe this show is stronger, but I'd be curious for your guys' thoughts. How does this stack up against, you know, Book of Boba Fett or Mandalorian or some of the other, so we're talking live action Star mm-hmm. Wars television on Disney Plus. It's weird for me because, you know, I'm going to bring in Devin's favorite Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, as an example, because <laughs> that's the way that I sort of feel about Obi-Wan Kenobi. For me, you know how I feel about Last Jedi. Devin loves it. I think that it has sections that don't really work, and there's things about that don't work and things I don't like. And I also feel it has some of the highest peak moments in the entire franchise. And those high peaks are so high. Um, that it sort of uh, allows me to forgive some of the things I don't like. So I'm a little more mixed on Devin than Devin is. That's sort of the way I feel about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like there were some issues with it, I sort of feel. Um, But some of the highs for me were so high, like seeing those two battle. I loved, I loved the Reva Vader battle scene. So like, I'm not sure for me, even if there were even better episodes of Andor than there were full episodes of Obi-Wan, like, it was just, I, I think it was just impossible that anything was going to match some of those lightsaber. I'm a sucker for a lightsaber battle. Yeah. Like, you? I'm just, what? Yes, I know. <laughs> I love it. You know this about me. I mean, it's why I can, part of me can forgive large swaths of the Phantom Menace just because of that awesome lightsaber battle at the end. And so it's, you're asking the question, Devin, and I think it's totally fair in some ways to say it's the best. Was it the most excited I ever got watching Star Wars? No, it wasn't. Fair. But like mm-hmm. that, Episode 10, the prison break episode, and the end of that episode was so great that that is definitely one of my favorite Star Wars episodes, top to bottom, if not my favorite Star Wars episode. So that's how I answer that question. What about you, Lauren? I know you're a huge Mando fan. <laughs> I think like season two of Mando, I, I like I, season one of Mando, I thought had uh, some issues. It was very laggy in the middle, but I thought season two was really strong start to finish. And I, and I, what I really liked about season two of Mando was that they worked in like stuff that is canon, like, you know, established Star Wars canon, but also made it enjoyable to people who did not know it. So I thought that was a really good balance of like the greater Star Wars canon and just t- trying to tell a fresh story. Um, but and it's also like with, uh mando and um obi-wan kenobi i'm just like more emotionally invested in those characters so like seeing like obi-wan and darth vader meet again and like you know and like literally obi-wan beat the crap out of him again like i'm just gonna be more emotionally invested in that like i was more emotionally invested in baby leia um just because of who she is um but like you know i think andor really did you know did a a really great job uh, you know exploring you know a much kind of darker and like not such a sort of pop star warsy like you know it's hard to make a star wars thing that doesn't have lightsabers in it and have that sort of like same kind of like you know kick about it but i thought it was really good but i still you know i still like i'm more emotionally involved in some of the other things and and you know in and just in animated star wars rebels is still my favorite at like of the all the the disney shows like star wars rebels start to finish is still my favorite one but you know so but i like the fact that we're seeing like something more adult and i and i really want lucasfilm to try all of these different like i don't want everything to feel the same like a lot of the marvel yep. shows kind of feel the same yeah. and I, I just want them like i want them to do stuff like visions i want them to do something more adult with Andor. you know it's like they've got so many different um you know age ranges to uh, you know appeal to and respect for never stepping foot on the planet tatooine bonus points yeah uh bonus points for andor you know, yeah no i totally agree i think all of these shows have different mission statements mm-hmm. you know um 
uh, Obi-Wan is sort of this, this wonderful sort of like redemption arc for, you know, and, and sort of returning to, to these stories from the prequels. It's, it's sort of this emotional gut punch. And Mandalorian is kind of like a throwback to what Star Wars was originally inspired by, which was sort of these classic adventure serials, like, you know, where, where every, you know, they're, they're sort of an overall arching, you know, story arc, but, but also, you know, you can have a fun spinoff uh, episode where, you know, they've got Frog Lady and all these, you know, kind of mm-hmm. self-contained adventures. And then you've got something like Andor, which I think is certainly one of the more adult themed shows that, that Star Wars has done. Um, and, you know, is more about, you know, rebellion and kind of these classic questions of, of good and evil and sacrifice. And so I think, I, I, I think, I like the idea that there's no singular voice anymore in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I like that that there's different, you know, kind of points of view and we're exploring different parts of this galaxy because that's the great thing about Star Wars. It's a big wide galaxy and it doesn't need to be just about the same three Skywalkers all the time. Um so that's something I've I've been really enjoying and that I hope Disney and Lucasfilm continue to embrace is sort of these different points of view and these different types of storytelling because I think, you know, not every piece of corner of Star Wars has to be directly for you and your specific interests, but there will be a corner of Star Wars that that fits your interests. And I think that's kind of a lovely idea and a lovely kind of um, you know model to to pursue. It'll be really interesting to see how Disney handles the franchise moving forward beyond the stuff that's already in production. I'm talking about how they greenlight because my sense is that that you know we don't know the numbers in terms of how people viewed Andor. But my sense is that Obi-Wan had massive more viewership, like mm-hmm. massive, yeah. massive, massive more. And Andor had better critical notices. Right. Yes. So, like, you know, how do they how do they sort of look at that internally and decide which direction they want to go in? Or are they going to continue to go both directions? Mandalorian, you could say, well, th- that was a new property. Those are new characters. But let's be honest. Mandalorian was a thinly disguised Boba Fett and 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 Baby Yoda was a Baby Yoda. You know what I mean? Like they, they it wasn't it wasn't a risky move for that show. What they're doing with Andor is a lot riskier. The risk paid off uh critically. I don't my sense is it hasn't paid off in giant viewership numbers for them. My sense is this whole we- weird Thanksgiving every property they own airing the first two episodes is a reflection of that. Um but who knows? But we'll see. Now the proof will be in what they start green lighting now. Like we aren't we know they have some things in production already or that have been announced. What about down the line, which direction they're gonna go in? That that's what I'm really curious to see. Yeah. So. I mean, I also don't know if it's like they're gonna use something that is so blockbuster successful like the Mandalorian and use that so that they can do these um smaller uh things. Cause it's like, right. you know, it's like you know, it, you use those blockbuster successes to do more challenging stuff. And, you know, and and it's that the, the success of the big ones are the things that allow the smaller ones to go through. So if they can kind of understand that, OK, this is these are the numbers we need for Mandalorian. But and or we can get away with like a slightly like, you know, but I mean, I know it's Disney. So Disney just wants blockbuster for everything. But, you know, I'm hoping Lucasfilm, you know, can can kind of balance the, the ledgers with that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, all right. Uh, before we get to our interviews, uh, if you joined us recently here on the pod, just because Andor is over, we are definitely not. We're going to keep at it each and every week, and we have an awesome Star Wars debate and discussion for you next week. <laughs> I promise you that. That's why we're all laughing. You're not going to want to miss it. But to paraphrase the acclaimed documentarian Marty DeBerge, enough of our yakking. Let's get to the folks you really want to hear from. Lauren spoke with Andor creator Tony Gilroy, and Devin chatted with series star Diego Luna about the finale, and we're gonna play both of those interviews for you right after this quick break. Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, congratulations on Andor's first season. I really thought it was like an exceptional uh, season of television. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's just, yeah, let's yeah, well. just say that. Okay. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where we expect to see uh, Cassian at the beginning of season two? Uh, Well, we spent 12 episodes and and a whole, the better part of a year, um, taking him from utter disillusionment and self-interest and, you know, just the worst day of his life and, Mm -hmm. and having him you know, go through the stations of the cross and of, of revolution, basically, and make the huge odyssey that he does. 
what he says at the end is true. It's a, that's really a blood oath. That's he's in. Uh, I don't think that question will be in doubt. We're not going to, I don't think that's an issue going forward. He's all in. So we're going to juggle four years mm-hmm. in the second half. And, um, the, the, the food we'll be consuming on that, I guess, is that, that he'll be, he has to become a leader. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? He has to, uh, he has to negotiate his way through uh, the Lutheran Rail experience and the the benefits and and uh, disasters that that means and that relationship. But um, what's happening on a large scale is that canonically, the you know we're going to end up in Yavin. We're going to mm-hmm. end up our show's going to end up in Yavin, and he'll walk out and he'll be there to be the guy who gives his life. But um, that that alliance in Yavin is a is a is an alliance of a pretty, you know, are those are are those the hardcore revolutionaries who really built everything, or are they all, or uh, you know, it's a it's 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 sort of the it's a coalition government there that's already contentious. Well, what happens and what has happened to all the original gangsters and outliers and all the people who built this thing along the way, and how do you operate? When your business is paranoia, how do you collaborate when paranoia and secrecy are your your product? How do you how do you scale up? How do you join forces? And how does the empire exploit those differences? And that is um, what are the effects of time on uh, on these people? And then obviously within that, we're going to try to tell a really a ripping yarn, a really mm-hmm. good adventure story, and we're going to try to have all the relationships and all the love and all the betrayal and all the other stuff. He's not, he's, he's in, he's in, he, he's, he's committed. So now it's, what do you do with it? So, and what, the one thing I really loved about uh, this show and, and something that I've always been fascinated with this period in Star Wars is that all the different uh, elements of the rebellion, where you have like sort of the Mon sort of bail side of it, and then you had the Saw sort of extremist side of it. And now you have Luthen, who's even more extreme uh, than Saw is. Uh, are we going to start seeing like more uh, rebellion leaders? Like, is like, are we going to see like someone like Bail Organa? Are we going to see um, even more factions within the rebellion? And and how does Luthen really fit into this uh, whole situation? Considering he's really uh, not, uh, he's he's willing to sacrifice whatever he can for the rebellion. Where uh, we've seen other people aren't quite so uh, quick to cut people down or cut people off. Uh, I'm going to sort of just dial into the answer I just gave because mm-hmm. I'm not going to specifically say who we're going to see or not going to see. But Luthen's problem is, you know, it, it's evidenced by his anxiety when Aldani goes. I mean, he's been building something for 15 years or 13 years or whatever it is. And and Aldani is the debutante ball for him. It's really <laughs> coming out of the thing. And, and what's what was so much fun was to was that for for Denise Goff's character Dedra mm-hmm. to make her so insightful. She you know she goes to the meeting the next morning when they have the emergency meeting and oh my god, there's been this raid on Aldani and we're gonna do all these things and we're gonna change the laws and all these new you know all that stuff. And she's so upset uh, when she gets back to her office and her assistant says to her, you know, why are you so upset? She goes, they're treating this like a robbery. It's an announcement, and she realizes. She's in tune. She's a mm-hmm. hunter who understands her prey. And uh, that little moment there, and then you see some fissures along the way with him. He, his anxiety is building. What do you do? How do you, how do you take a startup out of your garage? And how do you scale up paranoia? And if you've been your own boss for all this time, and how do you work with other people? And mm-hmm. um, yeah, th- those tensions are... I'm not going to get into what other factions or legacy characters we're going to be dealing with. Luthen, you know, he's there on the ground and he's seeing Ferrex like the, you know, Marva's great call to rebellion and where Ferrex really does. What is he thinking about that when he's starting to see, you know, because he's there just to kill Cassian, but then there's an, a whole entire rebellion that starts taking place. What is he thinking specifically in that? Oh, I think he's proud. Moment? I think oh. he's proud. <laughs> I mean, my God, it's just... He's just so proud. I think it's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he's it. Oh my God. Her speech. <laughs> and you just you see him warm up as her speech goes on. And it's just, uh, 
No, that's everything to him. I mean, he he's trying to uh, spread that seed everywhere he possibly can, and look what happened here. No, I think it's it's his dream. Yeah, I could I could imagine, and I I think that that scene, especially with Marva's sort of call to rebellion, and I know you have the magnificent Fiona Shaw. Um, was there sort of a temptation to sort of write a death scene for her, or what more could you need than you know Fiona Shaw uh, delivering a great a speech to rebellion? No, I was really pleased a week or so ago because I, I do I do voyeuristically drop in on Twitter every day to see what the <laughs> hell's going on and what people are saying. It's been pretty so, wild the last couple of weeks. So. I know, I know. But I like going and I really love I I love I mean, my God, there's oh, there's so much there's so much good and bad there. But I loved the idea that, oh, my God, Tony Gilroy knows how to do all this thing, but he puts her death off screen. Did they did they have a production problem or was it a scheduling issue or what was it? Why would he do that? And uh, I wouldn't have done that if I didn't think if I didn't know I had the eulogy. I was like, I had the eulogy idea a long time ago. So I was like, uh, having that in my hip pocket makes it almost mandatory that I do it this way. Yeah, so it was it, good. It was a fun. It's a fun bit of writing, you know. It it, it did throw off my uh, my fellow podcast hosts for wondering if Marva was really dead, and I'm like, I think she's pretty much dead after I saw the eulogy. Oh, I know. I saw election. that theory. I yeah. love that theory. I saw somebody with a theory say, "Oh my God, she's not dead. They're sneaking her out of there. It's Cassian's way of getting her free when they think she's dead." And it's like, I was like, "Wow, that's a that's a viable idea," but that's not what we're doing. Okay, that's good to know. But I mean, I did think her I think I did think that that speech and that call was it, it was such a great moment. And just to see uh, the various people who we've been sort of following along in Ferrex, and they've been sort of very, you know, Ferrex has been sort of like the quiet uh, angle of the show for a while. And then, you know, but seeing how much how that was really deliberately building up that these people were, you know, they were being pressed down. Finally, they were going to be rebelling. And I thought I thought it really worked well uh, in the ending uh, for the finale. Speaking of somebody else that people have been very curious as to whether they survived or not, uh, we've got Andy Serkis as Kino Loy. I know there's a ton of people who are very curious as to whether Kino survived. I personally think he might have just been like, screw it. I'm going to try and float. Like, he was such a great character. Um, are we possibly going to see him in the future? He doesn't die. I don't know. Okay. He doesn't. He, we don't see him die. So. Okay. So a potential. Okay, that's good to know. I mean, I always like seeing Andy Circus, and it's always great to see him when he's not covered in motion capture. So, uh, you know, I just thought that uh, that whole entire arc, the Narkina Five, was really uh, excellent. Um, but and then switching over to just like someone like Mon Mothma, and we're talking about the rebellion before. Um, can you talk a little bit about her like impetus? Like the, the I mean, she makes a huge decision, um, pretty much to sell out her family in this. Which part of me was like, well, maybe they should have been slightly nicer to her. Can you tell me a little bit about her finally crossing that sort of ethical line? Because that's like that's a big jump for her, who's always been trying. Like she's in the rebellion, but she's trying to do it in a, the most ethical manner that she can, which is not something I think Luthen really con concedes or c considers at all. I mean, Mon has the arguably the the hardest mm -hmm. road of any character in the show because everything she has to do is under glass. Everything is observed. She has no place to hide. You know, she can't shoot a gun or go jump off a cliff or blow something up. She has no cathartic physical way to escape from the from the trap that she's in and you know i mean i don't know i mean just go be her be mm -hmm. her in that moment and consider all the various possibilities because if she goes down yeah everything goes down and what happens what happens to her family then and she's just it, every decision that she has is tough and it's assuaged in a very hopefully interesting and weird way by the fact that her daughter is becoming sort of orthodox old school Chandrelin and going back to these old ways and like confusing everything. And then that, imagine how that makes her feel. Cause you feel like, Oh my God, we spent all this time escaping from all that. And you know, if I'd been a better parent, would she not be doing that? Would I, uh, why is she doing this? And you know, and the delusion that you can control your children and, mm -hmm. and uh, the swarm of anxieties that she has, um, I, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to there isn't a character in the show that I'm not sympathetic for. To. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, just every single one of them. But I have to be. But I mean, you know, when I put her on, it's very uncomfortable. She just really uh, she doesn't have a lot of good choices. 
No, no, she really doesn't. And I that's what I thought Genevieve O'Reilly has done such a sort of a magnificent job over the course is just seeing how sort of trapped she is. Um, but and it's interesting, as I, I know you've spoken about this, that we didn't really know much about Mon Mothma before this. Like she's been sort of this figurehead, uh, you know, uh, of the rebellion. But we didn't really know. Like I had no idea she had was married or that she was a mother and, you know, all of these other things that we we saw but it's like she's in a tight spot and she needs to get herself out of it and you know i I thought that was interesting that she was she she was kind of willing to sort of cross a line she hadn't been before because things were really starting to get dire for her it ruins everything i mean when vel comes there and vel realizes what she's doing and then she explains everything vel in the beginning is like you my god you couldn't possibly be doing that by the time she finishes explaining everything vel realizes the scale of it and Vel doesn't raise her hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything goes down, you know? That's a dramatic card that has real utility in a lot of different places, which is the stakes for a lot of people in a lot of different situations don't just involve themselves. They have all kinds of subsidiary and and, and collateral damage. Yeah, absolutely. I totally think that. Um, and then another thing when I was just uh, thinking about like specifically how we've seen the rebellion uh, before in Star Wars is that, you know, for the longest time, it was the light side versus the dark side, the Skywalker family dysfunction. But I know like in Andor, it's really like you're kind of bringing it down to what it feels like for people on the ground, which is really the fight between freedom and the encroaching fascism. And like was avoiding that sort of fantasy element of like the force. And because we know there are Jedi's kind of uh, former Jedi's run, running around in the rebellion. But like, was that a way to keep the story grounded? Like, like, how did you, like, was that some, something like you just wanted to push away from the fantasy element of it just so it was more of a really a, a stakes based thing for the people on the ground? Well, they've done all that. That's one thing. I don't want to do something that somebody did already. I mean, that's sort of that's yeah. literally where I start. I mm-hmm. mean, everything it doesn't matter what it is it's like, well, if we can't do something different, then let's not do it. Now, obviously, you can't reinvent everything, but. You know, that's that's literally where I start everything. And then I don't think I think there's I don't think most of the beings, creatures, humans or otherwise in that galaxy have Mm -hmm. ever seen a lightsaber. I don't think they know what any of that stuff is. I don't think that most of the you know, I, I wouldn't put a percent on it. You could call Pablo Hidalgo and ask him for what his guess is. But most people don't have any idea that there's a royal family or that this stuff is going on. It doesn't concern them. They're trying to do their lives and they're trying to do things. And, you know, unfortunately, Lucasfilm and Kathy Kennedy and Disney by, by association are, you know, we're really interested in opening a really new lane. If it works, it's not just, it's not just our show is a new thing. It also opens the possibilities to all kinds of other things. And I, I, I think that that's, had a lot of blood and treasure have gone into those other ideas. It doesn't seem like that would be something that you would want to. To redo again. No, I mean, I'm sure, you know, yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything that you learned in the making of season one that you're going to bring into season two? You know, I know this is is just too much to name. Oh my God. Um, You know what? I was very, very naive when I came into this. And I've been doing this my whole life. Uh-huh. But I was still incredibly naive about what I was getting into uh, because of the scale of it and the ultimate abundance of it and what we we're going to end up doing and what it was going to take and all the rest of it. What I've learned is it's just epic, the amount of things that I've learned. I thought I knew everything about scoring movies. And Nick Bertel and I both ended up doing seven hours of music and we both, I think we both hit the ground going like, okay, we know how to do this. And this is what we're going to do. <laughs> and like, we, it, we just halfway through we're like, Oh my God, I can't believe what we've learned. I, I, I've learned an incredible amount about everything, but I know now how to, I know how to manage the show better. I know how to delegate better. So mm-hmm. I don't, so I don't burn out. I've learned the absolute vital necessity of my department heads and my, my, my producing partners on a Wallenberg is just, I mean, there's no show. I, I wouldn't just wouldn't, nothing would exist without her. She, she's, she's, she's the other half of what I do. Luke Hall is my, the production designer is my primary writing companion. Really. He's my first collaborator because we have to mm-hmm. design everything first. I have my brother, John, who, you know, 
is the whole back end of the show who just backstops everything with the, with the, you know, not just editorial and sound and music and post. It's just a whole fundamental thing. And I, and, and I, we've surrounded ourselves with all these really remarkable obsessive people that we try to reward and make everybody feel like a filmmaker. So we have a really good culture that's established. And, um, and, but I also know, you know, it's sort of like having kids. You like, you, you, you don't know. You, you, oh my God, you have a kid. And you're like, Oh my God, if I knew it was going to be like this, I would like what I have done it. You're really happy. You did it, but you can't believe. It. And then you like, Oh my God, we're going to do it again. So we're going to do it one more time. So we're, I think we're, cause we're start shooting on Monday. So the last oh, wow. couple of days okay. have been last couple of days have been very gut checky for everybody. And, and, uh, I think everybody's of the mind, the hive mind that, um, okay, we know what we have to do. We can't let off. We can't, we can't congratulate ourselves or, 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 you know, or, or, or take all this affirmation for granted. Um, we know what we have to do, but, uh, we know we can do it and we know how good it feels when, when we, when we, uh, and how much fun we can really have, even if we're exhausted, how much fun we can have doing it. So it's both there's a lot there's a big advantage to making your first movie when you direct your first movie or make your first movie because you just you don't even know you're just you're blind you're like oh okay i'll do that and you you don't know you're going over to <laughs> niagara falls you know it's the second was it the second parachute jump is always the scariest one they say for people who do who jump out of airplanes it's not the first jump it's the second one that's really scary so uh i know the shoot will open but uh it's still oh my god <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me and good luck on uh when the production of season two when we hope to have you back when it starts Thanks yeah so like much. In, fif- in 15 years when we finish exactly. okay thank you <laughs> okay thank bye. you laura thank you so much for joining me diego i'm so excited to get to talk to you about the Andor finale yeah, I'm happy to talk to you too. I mean, it's sad to get to the finale, to be honest. I've been in, enjoying this this journey of uh, of releasing once a week. Uh, it's weird. At the beginning, I didn't know I, how I was gonna feel about it. It's just like so different, no? And it's 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 so long ago that we used to see TV this way, no? It's like it reminds me of the '90s, you know, when, when you had to wait for something to come out and and uh, and make an event about it but now that I, i've been going through this it's been it's been quite quite cool uh, yeah that was know. something i wanted to ask you about i mean what have the past few weeks been like for you you know what's it been like for you to watch the reaction to this show i'm excited i'm excited because uh i i i mean i was expecting the show to work i mean i feel proud of what we've done uh, I think it's it's uh, it's very good. I, I like it, you know. Uh, but but he, I don't I don't try to imagine the future too much, you know. Uh, I think I think that's that's uh, not fair with the experience, you know. On <laughs> uh, a way, I, I I I wait for things to happen and and reveal to me. And it's been it's been quite amazing to find out that people are not just enjoying the show. But celebrating it for for the reasons we wanted to make it, I'm hearing a lot of the uh, of stuff we were reminding ourselves every day on set. You know, uh, when, when they talk about the show, they they say things that we we at the beginning said we want to be that. You know, we want to be like we want to be profound. We want to be complex. We wanna we want to be very specific. You know, we want to take time and be patient and, and be intimate with these characters and go deep. Um, and it's, 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 it's a lot of what, what is being celebrated these days, you know, um, we want it to be mature. We want it to be darker. Um, and, uh, and all of that is what, what people are saying and what I'm reading. So it's exciting. It's exciting. Uh, not just people are liking it, but, uh, but they're liking it for, for, for the same reasons I like the show, you know, which, and I decided to do it. So, so that's, uh, feels very special, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I remember before the show came out, you said that, you know, the Cassian we meet at the start of the show is very different from the Cassian we meet in Rogue One. It's it's sort of following him, like you said, on this kind of slow journey, you know, and here in the finale, we see him like, you know, 
committing to the rebellion and, and you know, coming to Luthen and saying, like, I, I'm in. What interested you about, like, kind of that arc that we see him go on across this this whole season? Well, I mean, what, what I what I really like about Tony's writing and, and, and his first idea is, is, is how, how, I mean, how honest he is in answering the question of what needs to happen for someone, for an awakening to happen, you know, for someone to, to react under the circumstances. He, we, we are very specific about where is Cassian witnessing, uh, you know, reality from, you know, and he is, he's surviving in, in a very cynical kind of like way to see life, you know, where he doesn't feel part of anything uh, bigger uh, than 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 his own existence, you know. Even though he belongs to a community, he has trouble interacting with the community. He's hiding from them. He is in a in a in a moment where where you don't you you scratch and you don't find the revolutionary there, you know. And uh, and 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 the beauty of the of the journey is that he sees and witnesses events uh, that if you put all of that together, the whole information of what we regular people are capable of and how needed a change is, is there, you know. But uh, I think that the, what Tony does really well is that he, he never makes it easy for this character, you know, and he never simplifies the, the journey at all, you know. It's, it's very complex and, and everything counts, you know. If you go back and realize everything he listened, everything he witnessed, every conversation he had, all the information is there. All the, the moments that trigger something in him are there, you know. It's quite complex, you know, how, how he gets there. What I want to say is that uh, I think the journey of, of Cassian is, n- is not there yet, you know. By the end of this, he realizes how unlivable this life is, you know. And I think the prison is crucial for that, you know. The prison is, is, is where he realizes what life means to the empire, you know, what, what the life of people means to the empire, you know, and his own life. And how much in this moment, in this situation, in this galaxy, what he has can be called life, you know. And I think it's uh, like the example was always there, you know. The example was always there at the end. It's Marva, you know. <laughs> which uh, I think it's really strong. And it's, uh, I think, the, the, the beautiful way of closing that character on, on, on this last episode is so powerful and incredible, you know? And uh, it's, it's the referent that was always there and he wasn't ready to, to understand, you know? And he, he, he had it there in front of him all the time, but he wasn't ready. He needed to go out and witness everything he witnessed in order to go back home and say, shit, uh, it was here. It was all all here. Yeah. And I, I really love the relationship between Cassian and Marva. I, I, I love some of those scenes with you and Fiona Shaw. Tell me a little bit about, you know, working with her and, on, on some of those scenes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, Fiona is, she's amazing. She's amazing. We, we, we kind of like, work on those scenes as if it was theater, you know. Uh, we went through the whole scenes from beginning to end. Uh, and it was it was delicious, you know. It was it was there was always something new. She's so willing to keep growing, you know, to let the scene grow and to try things out. And it was like I mean, she's very humble, you know, and she is very open and she's very generous, I would say. Um I, I really, I really enjoyed working with her. Sadly, it wasn't, it, it wasn't as long as I would, would have wanted it to be, you know, um, because Cassian leaves. <laughs> and right. uh, I would say that uh, that's another thing I, I, I celebrate a lot. Uh, and it's not just Tony Gilroy; it's, it's Sam Wallenberg, uh, the the our producer, um, because the. The amount of time put on the casting of this series is is it's quite quite unique to see the amount of attention, and it is because yes, the scenes the scenes are are very complex, and there is a lot of layers, a lot of layers going on, 
And you need actors that, that understand that, that can make that into these very rich scenes that are full of meaning and that are long, you know, also because Tony writes these very long scenes. <laughs> I have really long scenes with uh, Stellan, with... Uh, with Fiona, with Andy Serkis, scenes that are, 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 I mean, that are not just long, but uh, again, that weight, you know, that are robust. That's the word, robust. So the casting is 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 something very important with material like this, and I think uh, even though on the page I always saw like okay. There's, there's something here. It wasn't until I was in front of the actors, you know, that I realized the magnitude of, of that relation in, in the arc of Cassian, you know. Uh, and the beauty of, of, of a format like this is that uh, you can keep that and, and use it and, and enrich your vision of the character, you know. Because it's all about that. The, the, I think the story is all about that. You know, if you we, we know where he ends. So this, this is the story about what he witnesses, uh, the people he meets, you know, uh, and uh, and the conditions uh, of that galaxy for a rebellion to erupt. So it's about all of those characters, you know. What I love about the series is that uh, even though it's called Andor, uh, I think it, it's a it's a beautiful excuse to have a very diverse orchestration of many many characters and that's why you can talk about a revolution because a revolution has to be uh, analyzed from many angles to really understand why there's a need for change and that's when all these characters are so important because they leave a mark in Cassian. And I wanted to ask, because I know you mentioned, you know, the the prison storyline is such a big tipping point for for Cassian. And, and and you mentioned, you know, some of those great scenes with Andy Serkis. What do you remember most about filming, you know, some of those those prison storyline sequences? It was insane because it was like we were living in a prison for weeks, <laughs> you know. No, I mean, Luke Hall, the, the, the production designer, builds these amazing sets that are actually real. They they work. I remember <laughs> I remember there was like a there was a, a few rehearsals for just for the machinery, you know, all of that when they're building, uh, they're they're working in the teams in the tables. Uh, I mean, that is actually happening, you know, the thing <laughs> moves, you bring the pieces, you put it together, you you take it out, another one comes, and it doesn't stop one after the other. And uh, it was suffocating to be in there, you know. Also, the, the, it wasn't just like the, 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 the set, like the space. The idea of being stuck in a pristine factory where you are making sure that the production never drops, uh, where you're nothing but a number, you know. And it's kind of like with this amazing costume design that Michael Wilkinson did. There is no personality behind every man there, you know. And we were there shooting for weeks, not seeing the light. You know, it's always it's always this white light that, you know, takes away <laughs> all the beauty, you know, the poetry <laughs> of the visuals. It was a beautiful concept, I think, and a beautiful comment. Imagine a jail where you just live by a lie, you know, by a, this false uh, hope of, of getting out of there. Conceptually, it was a very, very strong step of the, of the story. And, uh, and what happens there is, is it's a, it, there's no, no way back, no? basically. It's incredible the amount of control that the empire has, you know, they don't even have to watch you. They didn't even, they're not even there. And that's hardcore, you know? And if, if you connect, if you go back in that moment to Ferex and how he was living in Ferex in a place that the empire doesn't even care about, doesn't worry about, uh, it's it's a big jump, no? Yeah, and- But I think know- there's a lot to a lot for, for Cassian to understand still, you know, that's why. Uh, there's a need for a for a second season to get to to the captain we meet in Rogue One. There a lot has to happen still, you know. Yeah, there's so still so much growth. And one of the interesting things about this season is that you know Mon Mothma is a big part of this story. You know Genevieve O'Reilly, but you guys never meet. While you guys were filming, did you kind of know what was happening with her storyline, or was that kind of totally new to you once the once the show started airing? 
No, well, I, 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 on, the, on this time I, I was invited to produce, so I've, I, I, I knew everything. I knew everything. <laughs> I was, I, I've been in this show for more than four years. You know, wow. Basically, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it's, it's what I, what I've enjoyed so much in this, in this journey, is the possibility of being there since things were were just an idea you know listen to tony's ideas at the beginning then read all the all, all, all the scripts in order to get to the ones we shoot then work with the directors and see all the designs i'm i'm obsessed with the work of of, of luke hall and uh and, and uh, michael wilkinson and, and emma scott you know um the the designers uh i mean one one is the the production designer the other is the the costume designer and the makeup and hair designer i mean because in their process there's so much there it's so rich you know the amount of questions they have to answer about every character and every moment in the story before they even come to a design you can actually wear it's it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you've been working on the show for you know four years. I mean, when you think back to you know filming season one, what was like the scene or the day on set that is most memorable for you? Wow, that's a that's a difficult one. I mean, <laughs> I would say the first the first time I got to walk through Ferrix, it yeah. was that 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 was insane. You know, after talking so much about the show, after. The, seeing all the designs of fabrics, I, I I went before we started shooting when they were building, you know, the 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 whole the whole town, uh, the whole city, um, and I was there. Like I saw the thing coming up, and then see, seeing it at the end, uh, and then living in there when everything was working. Again, it's 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 incredible the amount of detail you know that the production like the construction of that place had you know uh, things i mean you you could open every door you could if there was a button you could touch it and something would happen you know uh you would walk in into a room and the room was was good to shoot in you know so the cafe the stores the little alleys the stairs going up a tower, everything, everything was there for you to, to use. It gave us an incredible amount of freedom to shoot there. And the first time I had to cross that long avenue with all the extras walking and the creatures and the droids, it was it was insane. You know, I remember it was it was the beginning of the year also. It was so cold. It was so cold on the outside. I mean, I I come from Mexico. I'm not used to this cold. So the whole situation was like so bizarre. I was so much in another galaxy, you know, in a, in one far far away, definitely. Yeah, and it was it was incredible, incredible to see the whole show happening, you know. And you have to understand this happened in the worst moments of the pandemic, you know. Yeah. In the worst moments of the confinement, uh, you had to arrive in London and and be ten days in a room before even having the opportunity to go out. Then, obviously, I, I my my family, my friends, everyone is in Mexico, uh, so I was pretty much alone uh, in that moment. In you know, <laughs> in a tiny place stuck in in London where you can't go out. And suddenly I was put in the middle of Ferrix. And, and imagine the amount of work production-wise. And it, it felt so, so bizarre, you know, so bizarre uh, to be experiencing that and then getting in a car and going back to your house and, and closing your door and not interacting with anyone else. It was a shock and a beautiful one, you know, because suddenly I realized the size of what we were doing. And... Uh, Sometimes you forget that with this show because there is moments that are so intimate, you know. There is so much, so much of the writing. It's about those very intimate moments with these characters in their houses, in their everyday life. And then you have the scope, obviously. But, uh, but sometimes you forget, you know. Sometimes you forget. And, and, and that, that day in Ferrix, I was like, holy crap. <laughs> we are we are doing a massive a gigantic show 
And, uh, and we're getting away with this. We're doing a, a great show in a very, very complicated moment, you know, <laughs> of life, basically, for everyone around. This meant so much, you know. Uh, it seemed impossible to shoot this way, and we managed uh, a way to do it, you know. I know you're. Um, I know you guys are starting production on season two very soon. I mean, or like if you haven't already, where are you guys in that in the process for season two? We just started. It's incredible. Like I didn't stop. I mean, I think I finished the first season like two weeks ago. You know, <laughs> doing or three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, exactly. I finished the first season. You know, all the looping in Spanish for the Latin American countries and the U.S. I, I finished it recently. Oh my gosh! Uh, and uh, and at the same time, I'm reading and seeing everything, doing sessions, meetings for the new season. Uh, it's just like there's n- there's not a chance to celebrate, you know. <laughs> that is that 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 is the the big difference of this format, you know. That we never stop working. Like I don't think Tony Gilroy will ever stop writing, uh, or you know, doing post-production or doing something for the show until until this is is done. So we're about to start this new new ride of uh of, of the second season, which is a long one. Uh, it is a long one. Uh, but uh, but uh, now we are we are doing it with with this beautiful feeling of of knowing we did something that that people cared about. You know. Yeah, excited, excited. Uh, the shooting That's... already started. It's a long one. Goes for months and months. So yeah. Well, I for one cannot wait. I need season two to like come back immediately <laughs> so I can see what happens next. <laughs> well, you're gonna have to wait a little bit because I mean each season is like four movies, you know. So absolutely. <laughs> the only thing I can promise is that we'll do it with the same respect, rigor, intensity, energy. You know, we're not gonna rush it. That's the beauty of this of this show that it's just two seasons and we can concentrate and, and try to to deliver something as good or even better if possible. No? That's so exciting. Well, thank you again. I will let you go and good luck with the rest of the shoot. Thank you very much. Our thanks to Tony Gilroy and Diego Luna for joining us this week. And while we're tripping all over ourselves, thanking everybody, a big hearty, happy Thanksgiving week to uh, all of you for listening. Thank you for hanging out with us. We would also be super thankful if you would please follow and rate the podcast and tell all your friends about it. And if you could just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be super swell. You can also connect with us on social media by following Entertainment Weekly on all socials. It's at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag and follow us directly using at Dalton Ross at Devin Kogan and at Morg Lore. Thanks so much, everyone. Have an amazing holiday and we'll do it all over again next week. This episode of Dagobah Dispatch is hosted by Dalton Ross, Devin Kogan, and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio. Edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.